Is it Captain Marvel time? It's Captain Marvel time. Before we do this, before we start, let's just get this out of the way. I do not hate Captain Marvel. Why do I feel the need to put this out there? Why am I being so defensive? Well, it's because people think I do. A lot of my friends expected me to hate it and to rant about how awful it was. And I didn't want to do that, man. I wanted Captain Marvel to be a great film and to succeed. Because I understood how important it was, even if Marvel didn't, and with the benefit of hindsight, I don't think they did. This is the second time I'm trying to write a review of this film. It was actually going to be the first episode of my podcast, but after I wrote the first draft and then revised that draft and then sat on it for a little bit, it just came out too negative. And this was before I even saw the film. I'm going to use some of what I wrote the first time, but I can tell you for a fact that I don't feel the same way. What I wanted to do originally was to write a preview, what I wanted to see in the film, and what I was hoping the character could accomplish. Then, I'd do another episode, this one after I saw the film, and I could compare the two. But, that never happened. I didn't want to be so negative. The idea of listening to me whine for 20 or 30 minutes about a fictional character just didn't seem appealing to me. And I'm the one talking about it, so basically I set it aside. I don't have to tell you the kind of world we're living in nowadays. If you're one of the lucky ones, you've got a job. And you're struggling to keep it and stay sane. And above all, stay healthy. COVID-19 has really done a number on everything. It's touched every facet of our society, and it's revealed how fragile the whole system really is. Not that it was a well-kept secret or anything, but we didn't need this kind of reminder. The reason I even bring it up is because for the first time in what feels like a long time, there's no massive blockbuster involving superheroes of any kind, at least not at the moment. There's no Avengers movie this summer, no more Phase 3 or Phase 4 or anything. It's the first summer in a long time without an MCU movie of any kind. It seems bizarre, but it's reality. In a lull like this, it's a lot easier to look back at the foundations they set for the next few years and to see how steady the House of Marvel truly is, at least at the moment. Avengers Endgame wrapped up one of the longest running arcs in storytelling history. Never before had this been attempted with so many movies, involving so many different characters, storylines, and directors. Although every movie told a different story and showcased the director's unique vision on how to tell that story, they all had mandates on what was supposed to happen and how to advance the overall massive story arc. Geez, it's almost like they knew what they were doing from the get-go and they weren't making it up as they went along. Funny. How a little planning and storyboarding can go a long way when you're telling a story. But I digress. That's a story for another day. One of the other things that Avengers Endgame also did was give the majority of the major players a way to wrap up their stories, to end them on a high note, and to transition to a new age, 
with grander scale and bigger stakes, if such a thing is even possible. In order to properly do this, you need a bona fide leader for a new team of Avengers. You can't fall back on past works, established characters. I mean, they will, and they're going to, but only to a certain extent. The new Avengers have to establish themselves in the same manner our original Avengers did, with a series of standalone films that highlight them individually, and then use set-piece movies like Avengers to show us how they work together. I'm sure that this would have been the case had we not have had a worldwide pandemic, right? You're probably wondering though, asking yourself, what does any of this have to do with Captain Marvel? Well, I want you to remember the range of emotions that you felt as you watch Avengers Infinity War. It's a bit hard to go back now and try to remember, but please do so. The villain. The villain that the heroes have all been looking for has arrived. The man responsible for the attack on New York, and none of them are really prepared to do anything about it. It still surprises me to hear how a lot of people didn't expect that movie to end the way it did. But of course it did. And it was spectacular. The movie event of the decade as far as I'm concerned. And so it happens to be that the final scene of Avengers Infinity War is Nick Fury summoning the help of a mysterious stranger from the heavens in a last ditch attempt to save mankind from whatever just happened. I mean, it's not like they really knew what was going on. No one from the Avengers was making sure that Nick was caught up. We would have two movies in between before Avengers Endgame was released. At the time, with Captain Marvel revealed as the mysterious stranger, I can honestly tell you that I was excited. What kind of story would we get? What kind of person was she? And why is she Nick Fury's last hope? I think those are good questions to ask, and answering them properly was essential to the future of the character and the future of the MCU as a whole. Pretty big stakes. That excitement, unfortunately, didn't last long. It had nothing to do with the character they had chosen, but rather the story they were going to tell. At the 11th hour, with the fate of the entire universe hanging at the balance, this is your final card. And it's an origin story? Now? At such a pivotal moment? Also, before we continue, just a side note. The other movie that came out between Infinity War and Endgame was Ant-Man and the Wasp. And somehow, that movie ended up being more relevant to the arc than Captain Marvel. There's a wager I would have lost every time. All this before I'd even watched the movie. Perhaps by this point you're jumping to the conclusion that I'd already formed a negative idea, a bad impression about the movie, that I would not enjoy it for whatever reasons, and I only wanted to bash it, that there was no way that the movie could meet or exceed my expectations. Well, you'd be wrong. That wasn't the case. I mean, the fact that it was going to be an origin story so late in the arc was concerning, for a variety of reasons that I'll soon share with you. But I won't bash a movie before I haven't seen it. That's a mistake I'm not gonna make again. Not after Wally. -E. Wally -E was released on June 27, 2008. It won a ton of awards, was considered the best film of 2008, and is on the list of best movies of the 21st century. Yeah, that Wally. -E. The one with the robot. Someday, I'll do a proper review, retrospective, the whole nine yards. But for now, I want to tell you a story about Wally. -E. I was 18 or 19 when Wally -E first came out, and I had no desire to watch a children's movie about a robot that collects trash. In fact, I'm pretty sure I spent a considerable amount of time berating the movie 
before it had even come out. Growing up, I was a huge fan of Pixar movies, still am, but at that age, the idea of watching a movie about a robot that goes off on an adventure seemed a little silly. To me, it looked like Pixar had finally ran out of ideas and was now making movies that would only appeal to children, something that hadn't been the case before. In any case, the movie came and went, and I only saw it a year later when I bought a bootleg copy for $5 from a fella that used to sell movies out of his van outside of a restaurant. I bought movies off that fella for years, and I never learned his name. I could have just downloaded them off the internet, but this was a lot easier, safer too. I remember we saw Wally on a Saturday afternoon from the comfort of my own home, and the experience was profound. Right away, the movie spoke to me. The way it starts, it paints its setting. A world so bleak, so empty, filled with all the garbage of a society that didn't know when to stop, didn't know how to stop. And in all that refuse, we find Wally, a machine that seems to exhibit human elements. A machine that dreams of love. What's more human than to dream of love? Later on in the film, Wally and company discover proof that Earth is ready for human habitation once again, and he goes out of his way to preserve that proof. He gets into a skirmish with one of the other robots concerning said proof and gets damaged. By this point, Eve wants to forgo the mission and just take him home, and he refuses. With all that he can muster, he tells Eve that the mission has to come first, that humanity has to come first, and only afterwards can they get around to fixing him. To be honest with you, I don't know how I got through that scene without crying, but man was I choked up. I don't know why this scene hit me so hard, but it did. This machine understands sacrifice. This machine is placing Eve's directive over his own existence, because it understands how important it is. Maybe even more so, than Eve. I still get choked up thinking about it. It was a triumph for filmmaking and storytelling. To get an audience that worked up, that invested in a character that can't even speak, is not even human? Yeah. Don't judge a film by what it looks like. As I said before, it was worrisome when we found out that Captain Marvel would be an origin story so late in the game. It's not that I don't like origin stories. Heck, Marvel is one of the best there is when it comes to telling them even foregoing the source material for a lot of these characters and still hitting home runs with almost all of them. Wait, almost all of them? Yeah, let's come back to this point because it's critical. In fact, it was my number one concern going into this movie. The real reason an origin story was so worrisome is time. Well, the lack of it. Two movies left. Think about that. Two movies left. One would be the Ant-Man sequel, the other Captain Marvel. Here you are writing what is arguably the most important character of the next phase of the MCU. And you've got one movie to make her likable, to make her grounded, to give us a chance to get to know her and to root for her. That's a tall order. I'm not saying it was impossible. Heck, every other origin story Marvel told did exactly that. But Marvel has since changed the way they do things. Look at Iron Man 1. With the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to look back and see how good the movie turned out to be, but going in, that wasn't the case. Iron Man 1 was a gamble. Iron Man wasn't Spider-Man or Wolverine or Batman. Not yet. To the mainstream audiences of those days, here's an unknown character that had been notoriously difficult to write for, and he's the anchor of our entire universe. 
You've also got to keep in mind that the actor portraying Iron Man was only getting back on his feet after years of struggling with substance abuse. Robert Downey Jr. was a huge risk. We may all love him now, but he had to earn it. That wasn't the case in 2008. He was a liability risk, and John Favreau almost had to stake his career in trusting Downey. If Iron Man 1 fails, the whole thing would have probably stalled for a while. Or maybe there is no MCU. I realized early on that Kevin Feige and company created the same circumstances for Captain Marvel, and they didn't have to. Here you've got another character that wasn't popular with mainstream audiences. Another character that's notoriously difficult to write for, portrayed by an actress that's suddenly become very polarizing. Another character that's crucial to the continuation of your cinematic universe. No big deal though, Iron Man 1 pulled it off, and Captain Marvel will pull it off too, right? Except, it's not that simple. Again, the reason is time. But why do I keep saying this? Why do I keep repeating this? Why is time so important in the context of Captain Marvel? Remember what I said about making her likable, grounding the character and making sure we're rooting for her? Have you only got one movie to do that? There's no room for adjustments this time. Not without seriously compromising the character and the audience's reaction to said character. It's also a question of time because of what happens next. But let's come back to this point later on. Marvel hit home runs with almost all their Phase 1 characters right off the bat. Almost all of them. Iron Man was a huge success. And the reason the MCU was able to continue to tell the rest of the origin stories required to set up Phase 1. But that wasn't the case with The Incredible Hulk. I'm not about to say that The Incredible Hulk was a bad movie, but it wasn't a great one either. While it's true that it was significantly better than the first Hulk movie they made, which was simply titled Hulk, it's the tone of that Incredible Hulk movie that simply feels off, and I believe that makes perfect sense. At this point in the timeline, we're at the beginning of the MCU, so to say that they had established a tone for all the other movies to follow, well, that's a stretch. They did eventually end up doing just that, just not with the Incredible Hulk. Bruce Banner's story could have been told with heart. A fugitive, on the run, afraid of what his own body can do. He longs to go home, to see Betty, and to change the world's perspective of who he is. Do we ever really care about Bruce Banner? Yeah, we do. Eventually, it does actually happen. Just not in this film. And the question is, why? While it's been a while since I've seen the film, and while they do manage to hit a few of those necessary story beats, they make a crucial, critical mistake. One that I see come up all the time in remakes, remasters, reimaginings, whatever you want to call it. You can make the argument that they're trusting the audience, that they don't want to retread, and that if you already know the story, why bother telling it again? While I can agree to a certain extent with that sentiment, ultimately, I think it's fundamentally incorrect. Just because your audience knows the story, doesn't mean you're not going to put in the work. To make a long argument very short, because we're supposed to be talking about Captain Marble, and I'm going somewhere with this, so just trust me, let me ask you the following. Why should we care about Betty? Who's Betty? Well, Bruce Banner's main love interest in the comics is Betty Ross. Of course, you know that if you read the comics. You would also know that if you saw the previous Hulk movie where this is established. However, if you don't know any of that coming in, the sudden arrival and importance of Betty Ross 
is kind of lost on you. That wonderful moment where they reunite in the rain doesn't matter. It has no weight because you don't know who Betty Ross is. The movie doesn't do a good enough of a job establishing who she is to Banner. Instead, the movie relies on weak flashbacks and the notion that you, the audience, know who the Hulk is and that you're also familiar with all the other players. That's just weak storytelling. And I'm glad to say it's a mistake Marvel doesn't make again. I understand that people don't want to retread well-established points, especially when this movie is a second attempt at telling the same story. But bear with me with this, because what I'm about to say may sound a bit controversial. An origin story should start at the beginning. It almost looks like Marvel makes the same mistake again with Spider-Man, except no, not really. Spider-Man Homecoming is not an origin story. Marvel didn't want to do that, understanding full well that the majority of its audience is familiar with Spider-Man. So instead, they tell the story of an established Spider-Man, which is brilliant. If there's no need for an origin story, then don't tell an origin story. Isn't that the wildest of notions? The point is, Marvel had to make adjustments to the Hulk and Bruce Banner, and they pull it off. And they can do this in part because they have the time to do so. With that said, let's talk about Thor. I don't think I have to say too much about how Thor changed throughout the films. It's well known by this point. Of the other Phase 1 movies that came out, Thor's origin story is also on the weaker side of the spectrum. However, there are significant differences between Thor and the Hulk. The first Thor movie, simply titled Thor, is a full story, with a completed character arc by the end of the first movie. The side characters in Thor are also fully established and have their own quirks and motivations, with my favorite being Darcy. Pretty sure she was your favorite too. Nothing against Natalie Portman, but Jane was boring in comparison. And so was Thor. While there are small glimpses in the first movies as to the potential of who Thor could be as a person, Thor's personality in the first two films is... Well, I said it before, so I'll say it again. He's boring. And I think that was the biggest and perhaps the only detraction. It's true that Thor was an alien, but he also felt like an alien. A notion that Taiki Waititi fully recognized and sought to correct. And that he did. Thor's changes as the movies went along are, and should be, the subject of its own episode. And again, only possible because there was time. Up to this point, we've only looked at how Marvel had to make adjustments to their male heroes. But the reality is that they had to put in a good amount of work on their female protagonists. At least the ones that stuck around and had major roles. It's sad to say that at the beginning, Marvel didn't exactly write the best roles for some of these female characters. We might have all loved Darcy, but she was a psychic psychic. Jane was boring. And even later on, doesn't get that much development. Hayley Atwell's character in Captain America, whose name, I won't lie, I had to look up, was decent and actually very good. It's just a shame that she only gets that one movie. I know there was a TV show, but I didn't watch it, so yeah. Pepper Potts is Tony Stark's secretary. She's important to the plot, critical, but she's not exactly standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with him, at least not in the heroic sense. This is a mistake that Marvel corrected as time went on. In Iron Man 2, we get Agent Romanoff, portrayed by the never-aging Scarlett Johansson. One of Black Widow's defining characteristics is her appearance. But she's not just a pretty face. She can handle herself. She can fight. But more importantly, because of the time they took to establish the character, she has an incredible story arc. To the point where her death in Avengers Endgame is tragic. It's unfair. And it's devastating. Again, all of it only possible because there's time enough to do so. Guardians of the Galaxy introduces Gamora. 
who was probably the best written female character of the whole MCU in terms of how complete she felt. By the end of the first movie, you fully believe that she's a warrior. You've gone on a journey with her. You like her. You're rooting for her. And she continues to grow in the sequel, Gamora. Despite being a warrior, an assassin, raised by Thanos himself, still has a heart. And we see her falling in love with Quill. This is critical. She behaves like a real person with real emotions. Age of Ultron gives us Wanda, a character that also benefits from the passage of time, from human experiment to a vital member of the Avengers. She becomes someone who rises above the tragedy that she goes through and we see it happen. Black Panther introduces us to Okoye. Okoye is a side character that also grows and becomes very likable as the movies continue. She has the benefit of two movies in which she grows and develops as a person, a side character. Having made my case that time is critical in the development of strong characters, be it male or female, let's actually get to brass tacks. As we review Captain Marvel, let's keep this in mind. Does Captain Marvel tell a full story with established characters? Is she likable? Do we root for her? Does she have heart? Afterwards, I also want to talk about what the movie was trying to make me feel. Because if you watch something and it doesn't move you in any way, shape, or form, then what was the point of it? Captain Marvel starts with an explosion. Actually, it starts with a real nice homage to Stan Lee and all his wonderful cameos over the years. I like that. I had totally forgotten that they had done that. Makes sense, since I've only seen this movie twice now, but the movie does start with an explosion. It's an obvious dream sequence because then we see her wake up. She doesn't know who she is or who she was. And this is also crucial to the story as she's supposed to find out and grow. We get a title card explaining that we're not on Earth, but I think we could have figured that one out. She gets up and then we see her sparring with Jude Law, whose name I didn't write down because I didn't want to. So I'm just gonna call him Jude Law. She loses the match. I mean, sort of. She blasts him with these energy blasts that come out of her hands. I'm sure we'll get an explanation for where those came from. I guess our little lady's part of the Space Force, as the Kree go into outer space to retrieve a spy that's been gathering information from the scrolls. This is what sets the whole movie off in motion. Before we continue, I just gotta bring this up. The Kree can't transform or shapeshift, however you wanna call it. But the scrolls do. That's why they're so threatening. So, how was this spy supposed to blend in? Like, what if they asked him to shapeshift? And then he couldn't do it. I'm just saying. Anyway, the whole thing reeks of ambush, and that's kind of what happens. So, our little lady, who they call Verse, which ain't the best of names, she gets caught and they scan her memories. And it's just a bunch of men telling her she can't do anything because she's a woman, I guess? Let's just come back to this. By this point in the movie, the bad guys, the scrolls, are looking for something. And that's why they're looking in her head. We also see that she was friends with someone back on Earth. So naturally, at some point, we're gonna go back there. And yeah, that's what happens. She crashes through the roof of a blockbuster on Earth, somewhere in California. And lay in the 90s with something else mid-90s by the looks of it. Anyway, she meets up with Nick Fury, because I guess they call S.H.I.E.L.D. anytime a roof caves in, and after a chase sequence with scrolls involved, they team up to find the mysterious woman that Carol keeps seeing in her dreams. I'm just gonna call her Carol, 
because Verse is dumb. There's some banter between the two of them as their little journey continues, and it eventually gets to Maria Rambeau's place in Louisiana. The two get caught up, and we learn about Carol's past in the scene that's... Well, let's just come back to that one too. The scrolls catch up to her, and we find out that, surprise, surprise, the Kree aren't as good as they've been painting themselves out to be. And the scrolls aren't exactly bad guys, even though they've been behaving like bad guys. Okay, so at this point, we find out that the plane crash explosion deal we see at the beginning is a lightspeed engine that was using Tesseract energy, and that's why the Kree came to Earth to get it. The mysterious woman is not a human, but Kree, and she's trying to develop technology to end wars. But actually, she's just trying to help the scrolls on the lowdown, which isn't too bad. Carol agrees to help them, and they go up to space, where they fight the scrolls and beat them, and then that's it. Ugh, the, the whole third act is... Well, I wrote the word lame, but I think the word generic matches a little better. Look, don't get me wrong. The special effects are pretty good, but seeing the Kree arrive on Earth is inconsequential because they don't do anything, because they can't. And at this point, she's become Superman, so they can't really beat her. Let's just move on and talk about what the movie's trying to make me feel. It was surprising to see that there were parts of this movie I actually enjoyed. Sadly, they were so small, so short, and so few, that I mostly just feel frustrated. Let's start with the good first. I like the Stan Lee tribute at the beginning of the film. That was nice. His cameo in the film is also very endearing. It's one of the few times we see Carol genuinely smile. Wish she did more of that in the movie. Right from the get-go, her interactions with other characters are written well. She doesn't come off as brash or arrogant. Instead, she's witty, cracks jokes, and is amusing. I just wish she'd carry that the whole movie. It's like she turns it on for a scene and then turns it off, and that's really jarring. There's a scene where a scroll screams at her and she screams back, and it doesn't come off as fierce. Instead, all I did was laugh, and I don't know if that's what they were going for. And Nick Fury has to carry the majority of the film as a whole because she's inconsistent. And for the most part, he does a good job at setting the tone. One of the weirdest parts about this, though, is the bar scene where she asks him a series of questions. I know they set the scene up to get some dialogue in, but logically it doesn't make sense. There's no way she can confirm any of it as being true. The only thing the movie establishes about the scrolls is that they can imitate down to the DNA of the subject. You have to kill them in order to get them to drop the disguise. So there was no way that the questions would reveal whether he was a scroll or not. Speaking of logic, let's see if I got this right. The lady, Marvell, developed a lightspeed engine to help the scrolls get away, find a planet that they could call their own, and escape the systematic genocide that the Kree had been committing. Okay, that's a noble cause. I can get behind that. Except for the part where the Kree don't use lightspeed engines. Because no one does. Because it's incredibly slow. In one scene of the movie, Jude Law says that if the scrolls got the lightspeed engine, they would be able to invade other galaxies. You want to talk about suspension of disbelief? Yeah, that was the part in the movie where I lost mine. It takes four years to get to the nearest star. That's not the sun from Earth. You know how long it takes to get to the nearest galaxy from Earth? At light speed? We've done the math on this already. It's about 2.5 million years at light speed. In the scale of the enormity of the universe, light speed is a joke. And Marvel knows that. It's why it's never mentioned in any other movie. Instead, everyone talks about jump points. 
Even the scrolls use them in the movie because no one uses light speed engines because it takes forever to go anywhere in the galaxy at light speed. I mean, if I'm the Kree and I hear that the scrolls want light speed engines, I would say fine. Here you go. Knock yourselves out. Then I'd sit back and watch them all die of old age trying to get to another galaxy. I know that the scrolls were looking for the energy signature and she had it and that's why they kidnapped her, and later on Talos wants to find his family, and they're on the ship, and then it turns into a fight for the Tesseract. Why not just make this a fight about the Tesseract instead? If that's what this was actually really about, they could have just said the scrolls are looking for an energy source that would help them turn the tidal war. There, boom, I just made the plot of this film a hundred times easier to understand. You already did the work on the Tesseract, and you could have tossed a line in there about how it makes power, which they did. The whole light speed engine thing was dumb. And it just made the Kree look dumb. And if those guys are the real baddies, you don't want them to look dumb. I mean, let me just get off this topic before I pop up blood vessel. Throughout the whole movie, we're constantly being told that she has to rein in her emotions because they can lead to costly mistakes. But we never see that. If you want to make the case that it's her emotions that lead them to get caught in that initial ambush? Well, sir, you'd be wrong, because it doesn't go down that way. The Kree were just idiots who couldn't see the ambush coming from a mile away. Like I said, unless your spy dude is a scroll himself, they'll know like in a second. And then, why not use his likeness to trick you, which is what they did. If you want to say that it was her emotions that led her crashing the plane and killing Marble, well, that didn't happen either. She got shot down. If your point is that the Kree wanted to control her emotions so that they could control her power, then what are you saying? That women are only strong when they're emotional and that they can't make logical, rational decisions? I'm pretty sure you're not saying that because the movie is not saying that. But see how easy it is to insert a hot take like that? I don't want to do that. Let's just look at what happens in the movie. The truth is, her emotions never get in the way of the movie, because the only one she's allowed to display is anger. She's just angry all the time, and sometimes slightly annoyed. I mean, sometimes she laughs, but that's it. When she's reunited with her best friend, they show her that she has a family, and that they thought she was dead. And then, Maria Rambeau pours her heart out to her about how she missed her, and there's no reaction to it. I get she doesn't remember, but it was also freakishly unnatural. Why does Talos, the alien bad dude in the movie, not Jude Law, but Jude Law is an alien too even though he looks human? Anyway, why does Talos act more human than you do? I wasn't expecting her to cry, but man, some sort of reaction would have been nice. This is one of the most important parts of the movie. You finally found where you belong, where you came from. You finally got a chance to get your life back, and nothing? You feel nothing for these people who could potentially be the only family you've got left? Okay, maybe I'm being too harsh. She doesn't remember and doesn't feel anything for them. Dude, that scene should have had a huge emotional impact. It should have been sad, but it goes by so quick that no one is allowed to process anything because she's not allowed to feel anything other than anger because emotions are bad apparently. As she spends more time with Maria and her daughter, she warms up to them, and by the end, she sheds a tear. And I'm glad they threw something in there, but at the same time, I'm left to wonder, did she get her memories back? The movie doesn't answer this clearly, because we have to fight the Kree and go for the big ending. If she did get her memories back, then make that clear to the audience. 
Unless I missed it. I mean, it's entirely possible I missed it. And if she didn't, they could have used that too. I think she got them back. Someone let me know, yeah? Because I'm not too sure. Okay. So now, let's talk about the montage scenes. Because I think this is what most people remember about Cat and Marble. The cringe-inducing men are all sexist, women are great and have no flaws montage scenes. We all get what they were trying to say with these scenes. Look at all the adversity she had to overcome in order to get where she is. She's an inspiration. <sighs> How about you put the work in instead? Don't tell me about her struggles. Show me her struggles. Because she doesn't struggle with anything in this movie. At no point is her life in danger. Like, never. If she had issues with her dad and he was a horrible sexist pig, then show us. Instead of dedicating a minute to men are all sexist scene, write a flashback scene where she wants to impress her dad in the race. And she can't. And he berates her for it. I'm sure it's okay for a little girl to want to make her dad proud. Write a scene where they're in the military and some of the men are awful to her and she struggles a little bit. Why do I gotta write the movie for them? They were just lazy. And not only does it take away from the movie, from the point they're trying to make, it turns it into a negative. The scene where she's remembering all the time she got up after falling. Ugh, of course she's gonna get up. What was she gonna do? Stay on the ground forever? That scene was ridiculous. And it's played seriously. And that's what makes it so funny. The only point these scenes managed to make is that all the men she ever interacted with in her life are bad. Which is not true. No one treats her like that in the movie. Not Fury, not Talos, not even Jude Law. And he's the bad guy. Do I even have to say anything about the come as you are scene? Or the just the girl fight sequence? Man, Kurt Cobain is spinning in his grave so hard right now, he's producing the necessary 1.21 gigawatts of energy required to time travel. Hopefully to before this movie was made. As far as the just the girl scene, Stop hitting me over the head with your message. I think I got it. She's a strong female woman. You just spent the whole movie trying to establish that, right? I got it. Then the movie kind of just ends and she leaves because she has to. Otherwise, nothing makes sense. And then Nick Fury loses his eye to a cat. I'm. What was that all about? And the Avenger thing. Didn't Fury call it the Avengers Initiative because of Captain America, who was the first Avenger? Why are we getting this weird retcon now? I that was unnecessary. Let me stop, because this is long enough as is, and I'm sure I've missed other stuff that will make me equally upset. So yes, the movie was trying to frustrate you, and I think it succeeds in this notion. Sometimes you laugh because some scenes are funny and others aren't trying to be, but they end up being funny, but it's mostly frustration. After I saw this movie and the backlash it created, and how everyone took sides and jabs were made at the fans and jabs were made at the actors, why think didn't deserve it because they only read what was on the pages but then they got defensive too <sighs> it was a whole mess and maybe it didn't have to be this way picture this instead of cramming captain marvel in before the grand finale how about you slide the movie onto phase four then you do what they did with black panther Black Panther just shows up in Civil War, and it's his actions that leave the most impression. The writers don't feel the need to tell us he's an important character, they just show us. And later on, he gets his own film where his character and background get fleshed out. Of course, this would mean making a few changes to Endgame. Instead of Captain Marvel saving Iron Man and Nebula, they could have had a scene where a deep scan into space reveals Tony's location, and then Rocket and the rest of the Avengers rescue them. It would mean giving her less time, but making her entrance at the movie a grand gesture. 
a final trump card. And it wouldn't have been cheap either, because it doesn't come out of nowhere. It was already teased in Infinity War. The scene where Thanos removes the stone at Decker shouldn't have been funny, but it was. And I wonder if the reason why is because people didn't like her. Placing her movie in Phase 4 would have given them a little bit more time to write out a more cohesive script. And more importantly, it would have avoided so much of the anger that it caused fans. This is, of course, just speculation. And sadly, the road not travel. So, did I like it? Well, I really did want to. I wanted her to be witty, charismatic, charming, engaging, humble, and human. This movie should have been a character study on who she is, instead of making her a blank slate by not remembering anything. A good story. A good hero's journey often calls for the hero to falter, to question their methods and motives, to fail, so they can rise again. This is a process that has to play out in order to win over the audience. It endears them to the character, makes them likable. Mind you, it's not the only way to do it, but it's a surefire way to do it. Like I've said before, I don't think there's ever a point in the film where her life is in danger, where she's failed to accomplish something. She's brave and powerful, but we don't see her becoming brave or powerful. She just is, and that does not make for an interesting story. Power in an empty shell means nothing. It's the reason we can't tell good Superman stories, and the reason why some people can. Because they understand what they have to do with this power, and it's clear that the writers of Captain Marvel had other ideas. By almost all definitions, Captain Marvel was a good movie. Proof that stories with strong female leads can be financially successful. I don't know why we suddenly needed proof. Aliens and Terminator 2 proved a long time ago that no one cares what gender the main character is as long as the story is good. The measure of a good story is not how much action there is in a story or where it takes place, but rather the strength of the characters and the journey they go on. Captain Marvel could have been great, but ultimately it wasn't. It checks off the boxes it's supposed to do, but there's no heart behind it. If it has been described by other people as cookie cutter, well, that's because that's what it is. Brie Larson did the best she could with the material she was given. Why she suddenly began to make polarizing statements as to the nature of the film is something I have no answer for. Maybe you do. Captain Marvel leaves her whole life behind to fight for the injustices of people she didn't care about two seconds before, and it feels empty. It almost feels like she's supposed to do it. I'm just not entirely convinced as to the why. Perhaps in the future, adjustments can be made for her character. Just like Thor, just like the Hulk. Ultimately, I don't feel a huge need to re-watch this film anytime soon. There was nothing grandiose, nothing memorable about it. And that's just unfortunate. That's how I feel. That's also my opinion. It doesn't have to be yours. Maybe you liked it. Maybe you thought it was great. And if that's the case, don't let me dissuade you. You've got your reasons. I've got mine. Ultimately, it's not the end of the world if we don't agree on something. Thanks a lot for sticking around. Be safe, my fellow travelers. Be excellent to each other. And party on.